Blog Talk Radio. Huggles Children's Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to providing underprivileged children with basic necessities of life.
I am also a board-certified integrated holistic health energy psychology, positive psychology, and vibrational sound therapist with a private practice in Sussex County, New Jersey, where From the Heart Radio streams to you live each and every week, bringing you optimistic and uplifting information from interesting people, people who are making a positive impact in our world. Today, we are very fortunate to be speaking with full-time life coach, podcaster, and Amazon best-selling author, Jamal Javanji. Jamal has more than 20 years' experience working with people in various stages of personal struggle and challenge. He's traveled to many cultures around the globe, and through his journeys, he has discovered the common roots of human suffering, along with the sustainable solutions required to help people become liberated and empowered. He is passionate about serving individuals, couples, and groups on the path toward enlightenment, wholeness, and liberation. And our topic for discussion is his best-selling book, Living for a Living, Moving from a Mindset of Survival to an Economy of Love. Welcome to the show, Jamal. Thank you for taking time to be here. It is such a pleasure to have you join us on From the Heart Radio. How are you being? Well, I, I'm, I am fantastic right now. I have been looking forward to uh, this conversation for a while, so I feel honored and privileged to be uh, a guest on your show, so thank you for having me. Well, you're welcome, and right back at you, you know, your book, Living for a Living. Okay, so I read the title, and I said to myself, wait, what? And I had a double take and then <laughs> laughed because while the title, I mean, it is just genius. It is a genius title. You sum up how we really ought to be in life in, you know, what is it, four words. So to coin a phrase, you had me at the cover, <laughs> and I very much enjoyed the content <laughs> as well. <laughs> you know, your book is, it's powerful. It is real. It completely made sense to me, and it's also a quick read with humor sprinkled throughout. So kudos to you on engaging us with your insights and perspective. I sometimes do ask authors, how did you come up with the title? You know, where did the title come from? But in your case, I kind of feel you didn't come up with the title. Rather, in my mind, the appropriate question is, and the one that I feel to ask is, what brought you to the title, Living for a Living? Yes, well, well, first of all, I, I'm humbled that you, uh, that you enjoyed the book. Thank, thank you for reading it. I'm, it's my heart. You know, obviously, I wrote it to, uh, to, to be an encouragement to people and to be a, a tool, a springboard into living for a living. But uh, in regards to your question, the title, you know, to be completely honest, the title really comes out of a kind of a pet peeve that I've, I've always had. And, you know, we all get asked the question, especially if you, you know, meet new people, if you're at a party or something, people always like to ask you, hey, what is it that you do for a living? And I know what people mean by the question, but because of how I grew up, and obviously I'll talk a little bit about that in the, in the book, but, you know, I grew up in a family that, um, you know, I, two, I grew up with two great parents that did the best they could. They worked really hard, but their motivation for them in their work wasn't living. It was survival. I mean, they come from a you know, generational poverty, so it was just, you know, the message that I was uh, indoctrinated with from early age was, you know, you're, you, you, have to, you have to work really hard to survive. And, um, but I was, as I observed my parents' life and their struggle, there was something, there was something deep inside me that just said, there's got to be, is this what it means to live? Uh, it, it, there has to be more to life 
than just struggle and survive. It's just there has to be more to life than just paying the bills, earning earning two dollars and spending it all on bills every every week or every month. This just seemed like what's the point of that? And I came to the conclusion pretty early on that, that was not actually living. So when people would ask the question, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do for a living? What do you do for a living? I, I used to bristle at that question because the word living and survival are two very different things. And so what people typically mean when they ask the question, what do you do for a living, is uh, it's what do you do for money? But what you do for money, is, like I said, is not necessarily what you do for a living. So I had this quest, a lifelong quest for me, is to, what if you could live for a living? What if that's the point of life? It's not just actually to survive, but why would you want to survive? What's the point? So what if you survive? Then what do you do? And the <laughs> point is to live. And so I became convinced that I wanted to live for a living, not just live for survival. And so <laughs> that's how I came up with the title, uh, Living for a Living. Well, that is great to be that astute and see that when you're that young, because I think everybody, well, probably everybody listening, a lot of people anyway, were brought up with, you know, you go to school, and then you go to college, and you make your way and find something that you can do that will bring in a lot of money so that you can live and bring up your children with these same beliefs. <laughs> and I think that that's probably the way it was, and in some cases continues to be, but doesn't allow people to realize that there's more to life than just making a buck and you know, and having a big house and, and driving fancy cars and, and all of that stuff. So it was interesting that early on in your book, you speak about money, probably the major factor in how we choose to proceed in life. But for most, it doesn't always allow us to live fully. Rather, it means, you know, it, it becomes a means of survival, as you said, which is sad. Mm -hmm. Now, I admit, I like money. I like money a lot. It's good. I find I can do a lot with money for myself <laughs> as well as others. So it allows me to pay the bills, sure, but it's not the end all, and it certainly is not my God. I do not and, and will not allow money to dictate the way I choose to live my life. Money has value, but I find that experiences like MasterCard are priceless. You know, we <laughs> seem to put so much into the amount of money we need to have what we want. But then in that want, we find lack. So that lack doesn't really allow us to think about what we can do to be better, to grow, to learn, and to help ourselves, our own being, how we experience living. So when you speak about money, I felt you were speaking more on those terms than on actually the money itself. And I think it's the perspective of how, of how we view money and use money, how we receive money. And when you say living for a living, you're not talking about the job we perform, as you said, that provides a paycheck so we can support ourselves. But rather, I felt you were talking about how we are living outside of the job, the work, the vocation, the career, whatever. So did I get the message in your book or am I like way out there where the buses don't run? <laughs> No, I, I think I think you're totally spot on. So, I mean, I can clarify it. I think a lot of times we confuse or people confuse um, things, um, you know, material items, money with actual life, and these aren't the same things. So, you know, I love money as well. Money, money. The reason I love money is because money is whatever I want it to be. So, when we say money, the root word of money is currency. 
And the root word of currency is current. It's energy. So what we're talking about is energy. Money is just a story we tell. It's really, we're making it up. We invented it. You know, we, it's, I mean, it's went through a lot of evolutions over, over time. You know, at one point in time, it was, you know, the, it was seeds, you know, literally like, you know, uh, it was seeds that you put in the ground because it would yield a crop. And then at another point it became, you know, eventually most societies began to see money as uh, a rock. And what I mean by a rock is gold, gold's a rock, comes out of the earth. And, and for whatever reason, people decided that had a lot of value. Now, why did it have value? Does it have more value than another rock uh, that you find on the ground? No, actually, inherently, it doesn't. It's all the same. But we decide it looks pretty. We, we're going to give it value because we say it has value. And then money represented, uh, and you know, currency in that, and that's or gold represented currency in that form. But then after a while, you know, you couldn't travel with, with gold. It's heavy. <laughs> if you're on a you could, also, you could also be robbed. It could be taken from you. So people had this brilliant idea. If we put it in a safety deposit box, we call that a bank, the bank then can just write out a piece of paper and say, hey, this piece of paper represents a certain measure of, of, of currency, of gold that you have in the bank. And so then that was the invention of, quote, unquote, paper money. So we're just making the story up. But what, what's the story we're telling? We're telling a story of energy, which is current. Now, how much energy is there? Well, all of it. There's, there's no, you know, we know this from physics 101. Energy does not, cannot be created or destroyed. It just changes form. So it's like the story that a lot of times we're indoctrinated or programmed with is there's not enough currency in the world, and we have to fight for it to get it. We have to really strive for it. But that's a, that's a false concept. Now, it took me a long time to realize that. But all there is is energy. And so money is just a story we tell about energy. So it can be a great story if we – if we understand what it is, truly, or it can be a traumatizing story. And that's what, unfortunately, most people are traumatized by the story we tell around money. And so it's a very important, that's why I like to start the book with, what is it? Let's get a clear perspective of money. Yeah, it is an exchange for things that, you know, it's like a bartering, but you're bartering with paper or coin. And we do put a lot sure. of value on it. I, I think one of the things that, I don't think many people realize, and you put it in your book, and, and it was funny to read. Um, well, it wasn't funny, but I, you know, I kind of chuckled at it. I don't think people realize how money came about, and, and more importantly, by whom, specifically the Federal Reserve and how it's so controlled. And mm. I, I don't want to go off topic, but would you speak to that? Because I think people are going to be surprised. Oh, totally. Most people, you know, if you ask, you know, the average American, you know, where, where does your money come from? Most people, they, they just really haven't thought about it. I spent many years of my own life. I can understand that. You just don't think about it. You take it for granted. But the question is, who is making this thing? Who, is, who invented our, our current uh, money system, the, 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 the dollar, you know, the American dollar? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from, literally, there is a board. <laughs> There's about seven people that sit on this board. It's these seven people get to make up the story. Basically, uh, at one point in time, like I mentioned, the American dollar, the U.S. dollar, was based upon um, a measure of gold that, that was stored in the U.S. Treasury. Um, so the, the dollar represented that. Well, at some point in time, the, I think it was in 1971 or two, I think it was President Richard Nixon decided to uh, change you know, the, the, the foundation of what money was uh, 
of the worth of money. And basically, he decided to take the American dollar off the gold standard. So basically, the Fed, what's called the Fed, the Federal Reserve Board, was able to decide what the, the dollar would be based upon, what, what the value of the dollar was. No longer is its value dependent upon gold. These seven people that sit on this board, and of course the, the, chair, the chairman of the board, uh, the Federal Reserve Board, is appointed by the president. But really, they're not—they're um, just—they're really not elected in, this, in the same way we elect our politicians. This is just a group of seven people, and they literally make up what money is. They, they decide this is what it's based upon. This is what the value is based upon, and they take these certain criteria like gross domestic product and. Um, you know, different, different factors that, you know, economic output, these different factors that lead into what the, what the dollar is based upon. But the question is, who, who decided that, those rules? Well, they did. They just completely invented it. And then they print it. Um, they just, if they need money, they just print it. They, they, they literally print it. And then they go to the U.S. government and they say, oh, you need some money to operate your government with. Okay, so you'll have to borrow it from us. So then they, there's, a, there's an agreement made between the U.S. government and these group of seven bankers, basically, these seven members of this board. And they, they, this, these seven people print money out of thin air, literally print this currency, and then loan it to the federal government. But then because it's a loan, they say, well, we're going to have to charge interest. So then the government has to pay that money back with interest. But where are they going to get the money for the interest? Because the government has no money of their own because they gave that right away to the, the Federal Reserve Board. The federal, in order to pay back the loan with the interest, they have to get another loan to pay the interest. So it just keeps compounding. And of course, whatever the government does, uh, it, it represents the people. So the people are increased. This is why we have a national deficit, because the, the U.S. government has no ability to print money on its own. So this is where the American money system comes from. And uh, it's um, and people call it a Ponzi scheme. It's definitely interesting when you look at it at the Federal Reserve level, how much money is there? Well, it's infinite to them. They just print it, and they, and they tell you what it's worth. So for them, it's infinite in supply. There is no lack of money for them. Now, we're told there's a lack of money. The U.S. government only takes in a certain amount of money, and they only pay back a certain because, you know, we have to. But, but at the Federal Reserve level, it's infinite in supply, and that's actually the truth. The money is infinite in supply which a lot of people will say, well, what are you talking about? How can that be? Because remember, we have to come back. What does money, what, what's the story we're telling in money? What is it, what's, what's, what's the root of money? Well, it's just simply currency, which is current, which is energy. And energy, how much energy is there? I have to say all of it. It all exists. Infinite. So, infinite. It's infinite. Yeah. That's why. But I think so what's most I, interesting heart, about that is when you say, you know, it, this is what the people have decided. The, this people didn't decide that. I don't think a lot of people have decided this. Who are these no. seven people? Who, who brings them to this board? How does it get inherited from one person to the other? I don't think this is widespread news is what I'm trying to say here. Oh, it's not. I, I think if most people were to, to, to learn about what the Federal Reserve is, where it came from, and what it does, they would be horrified because nobody yeah. agreed to this. It's a quantum. So, <laughs> it, it, it is. It's interesting. But I like to – so my heart with people who, who's read the book is I like I, – I my heart is I want people to come away from 
the read, Living for Living, and understand that really this is just a story. So we shouldn't take it too seriously, right? So money, the, the truth of money, the root of it is, oh, it's infinite supply, right? So we don't have to worry. Money is just about the, the story we're telling about energy. Um, it's an exchange of energy. We can, you know, the Federal Reserve plays a game and tells it this way. That's fine. As long as we see through the illusion, then we're okay. It's not a problem. So that, that's – there's a um, – uh, it's just a shift in perspective there. But one of the things I want people to realize also is that a lot of times we confuse material things like money or <clears throat> um, you know, cars or houses or you know, whatever it is that we have, clothes. <clears throat> we confuse that with life. And people think if I have a certain amount of possessions, I have a certain amount – if I accumulate enough – then my life, like my quality of life will be better. And that is actually fundamentally false because, but think about it. You know, if, you, if somebody lives in a, like let's say, you know, I mean, I, I live close to Los Angeles, right? So if, if I go down to Los Angeles today and I drive, you know, through Skid Row and there's tent cities, people living in tents, you know, it does something to their heart. You know, people, they just look at those folks and they just, Oh my goodness, uh-huh. this is horrible. Look at these folks living in tents. They're suffering. You know, we put all that all that perspective. I've also traveled uh, the world, and I've been to many places around the world. I've been to uh, slums in Africa. I've been to slums in India, and you know, we just assume, especially coming from a Western background, oh, th- these people are just suffering. But I will never forget being in one of those very impoverished places, and I saw this man. He was a farmer, and they had a they'd had a drought that year, and the crop crop was a failure. And he, he literally he told me he says I, I have no idea how I will feed my family next week. I, I have no I don't know where it's going to come from. But he had this big smile on his face, and he was so full of peace and joy. He said, but I can tell you with a hundred percent certainty that we'll be just fine because I'm fine right now, and it's always right now. Like, I'm always fine in the present day, in the present moment. We're always okay. So I don't worry because today I'm fine, and this is how I live. And he was living his quality of life. It struck me because there was a profound lack of anxiety. There was a profound lack of struggle. There was a tremendous peace he operated in. But he didn't have the, the, the money in the bank. He didn't have the possessions. And so, you know, we look at people who, who maybe live the way he, this man lived, or we go down to Skid Row in Los Angeles and we see people living in tents, and we just assume they're suffering. But let's go back in time 10,000 years. Everybody's living in, in tents. <laughs> Everybody's living in huts. Were they suffering? No. Right, no. Because everybody's <laughs> living in suffering. So, so what we've confused is we – now, because we have – some people have homes and houses and you know mansions and nice cars to drive and that kind of thing. Then what we do is we confuse that with a quality of life. And then we say the people who don't have that have a poor quality of life, but that's actually not the case. How many people do we know with beautiful homes, multi-million dollar homes uh, that have their own private jets, that have their own, you know, lots of cars? How many of those folks commit suicide? Mm, How many of those right. folks are on, on drugs and are trying to medicate themselves because their their existence is miserable? How many of those folks are having failed relationship after failed relationship? Be, because the our quality of life is not determined. This is what we need to really understand. The nature of our life is not determined by by material possessions. Now I'm all I love 
having a nice car. I love having a home to live in. That's all, all that's great, but it does not determine my experience. And that's, that's a hard pill for people to swallow, but I want people to see that. A hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, everybody was living the same way, and there was, there was not suffering because of that. So it's the meaning we make in our, in our mental constructs that create the suffering. Just like when I drive down the skid road, I say, oh, those poor people, look at them, they're living in tents. Now, I don't want people to be homeless, so don't get me wrong. But the, the, what I'm, the, the mental construct that I'm applying to them is really my own comparison. It's the meaning I'm making and I'm projecting it onto those folks. I'm sure some of those folks that have a high quality of life, if you talk to them, and I have talked to many of them, just like the, the, the example I gave when I traveled to mm-hmm. a very impoverished country and this man was full of joy. He did not have the same meaning that I gave his life. His life was abundant. In his, in he, it felt abundant to him. I, I use my Western constructs and apply that to him and say, oh, he must be, he's so impoverished, he's so poor, but that's not how he felt. So that's a very important concept. It is. And you speak about suffering and pain as well in your book, Living for a Living. And, well, suffering for me, okay, is active, it's lingering, and, and it perpetuates, whereas pain is a physical or emotional or mental thing that we do, but it's, it, that we experience, but it's not up there with the agony of suffering from, from my perspective. Pain comes and goes, and we do get over it. But when we take pain and then uh, let's say we compound it with ongoing thoughts, being a victim, whether we are blaming family, friends, the world, God, doesn't matter. We really get into the suffering part where we create a whirlwind of increased suffering as we tell that story over and over and over again. And not just to ourselves, but to others as well through conversations or even, oh my gosh, even worse writing about plights on social media platforms. Those actions reinforce the, reinforce the belief to the point that we change our behavior and within ourselves and toward others, even strangers. It doesn't seem to matter who, but we then live with what we think and believe, and all that does is continue the downward, downward spiral, which we may not even realize we're in, while we're perpetuating the existence of our life without truly living our life or being in joy, as you said, it's the suffering to me is worse than the pain, but the pain mm. is what the ongoing pain can, can just, those thoughts can just continue and perpetuate that suffering. So there's never going to be any joy. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love the distinction you're making. It's a very important distinction between pain and suffering. Most people use those words interchangeably like they're the same thing, but they're not. They're very different. You know, I, I like to say that pain is a part of life. You know, pain is inevitable. There are going to be painful things that happen to all of us. But suffering, as you mentioned, it, it goes, it lingers. It doesn't, see pain, the good thing about pain is, you know, it comes and goes. It's, it's kind of like a wave. It, it will, it'll rise, it'll crest, and it'll, it'll dissipate, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, the, you know, a few nights ago, I stubbed my toe. And um, it hurt really bad <laughs> for a couple of minutes. And, you know, it, it, like most of us have stubbed our toe. When you stub your toe, especially if you do it pretty hard, I mean, life comes to an end. I mean, it, it, I stubbed my toe and I couldn't think about anything. 
life, it just was, it, it, everything ceased and my, all my focus and attention and energy went right to my big toe, which was throbbing. And I couldn't <laughs> think about anything else for about uh, probably about 90 seconds or so. But after about 90 seconds, it's funny, they have actually done some studies that show that uh, when you have a shocking event or a painful event, your physiology, uh, it takes about 90 seconds you know, before you can actually come to your senses. So it, it's a, there's a shock to the system. But after about 90 seconds or so, um, you, you know, you start to breathe, your breathing starts to, to regulate. You can come back to, you know, okay, everything's, it's not as bad as I, as I thought. Okay, it's going to, you know, pain's easing a little bit. That's the nature of pain. It goes away. But suffering, now I could, let's just say I stub my toe, and it's painful, obviously. But then I start there's a mental narrative that picks up with. And let's say I have mm-hmm. this mental narrative of who left this in the, in the middle of the floor? You know, I live with a bunch of inconsiderate people who don't care about, you know, I, this is the story of my life. I can't even walk across the room without stubbing my toe. You know, this, is, this, this just keeps happening. You know, and now where there's a whole narrative that's, that's continuing. Now the pain can come and go, but the suffering lingers because of what I made the event mean. Now, right. life is just a series of events. Events don't mean anything. Now, I know that sometimes, you know, in my coaching work, I try to tell people that. I was like, we are giving every event meaning. And that meaning is coming from our subconscious or unconscious scripts that are running the show here. And that's causing our suffering. Uh, because suffering is about the narrative. It's, it's the story we're telling about the event. The, the event may be painful, but it doesn't cause suffering unless we, it, we tell a specific story about it. So we give all the events meaning in our lives. And so I always say, if you're going to give it meaning, give it the meaning that's going to, that's going to transform your, your state of being into a state that you actually desire, not one that you don't desire. Because no, nobody wants to suffer. I have never met a person that says, you know, I really like to suffer. No. It's, nobody wants to suffer. But it, if, if we're going to come out of states of suffering, um, we have to start seeing that this is coming from a narrative. Uh, it's the meaning we're giving to the event, not the event itself. Huge distinction. Yeah, yeah, there is. Oh. Okay, we are going to take a short break to talk about, because it's now time, for Soji Shares, where we are sharing stories about kids from all over the globe who are doing amazing things in this world. You know, history is full of young people who astounded the world with their thoughts and creations, people like Anne Frank and Mozart, Louis Braille. And oftentimes today we hear people say things like the kids today are lazy, they're always on their phones, Xboxes, constantly watching videos, or they don't care, they're self-absorbed, they don't get involved. Now those generalizations are so not true. There are children all over this planet who are living proof that the kids today are just as motivated, they are just as creative, focused, and passionate as they have ever been. And our goal at SojiKids.org is to spread joy, hence our name Soji, an acronym for sharing our joy intentionally. And this week, our Soji share is about a young man named Jaquiel Jackson. Now, this is such a cool story. When Jaquiel was five years old, he helped his aunt distribute food to the homeless. And from then on, he wanted to make a greater difference. He wanted to do more. So not just a little bit more either. This young child, he really went for it. Just three years later, at eight, he was eight years old, Shaquille created a bona fide nonprofit called Project I Am to help the homeless in Chicago. 
He made it his business to build awareness of homelessness and to help the homeless population by offering those in need with what he calls blessing bags. And these bags are filled with wipes and socks, deodorant, hand sanitizer, granola bars, toothbrushes, toothpaste, bottled water, all kinds of things that people need on a regular basis. And the cost to create each bag is approximately $10. Now, Shaquille didn't just set goals. He met those goals, and then he went ahead, surpassing many of them. In just a few years, Shaquille's efforts touched over 70,000 men, women, and children across the globe. He organized donation drop-off sites and bag-stuffing parties where community members, family, and his fourth-grade friends at the time helped him create the bags. And he went on to establish partnerships with homeless shelters and other relief agencies where he himself distributed each of the blessing bags and spent time in conversation with the recipients. He took the time to talk to these people. He heard from kids in other cities interested in joining his cause, and thus the expansion began. He's a best-selling author as well. His first book, I Am, was written at age 11. He tackled the difficult issue of bullying, while his recent book, uh, Don't Wait to Be Great, was written at age 14, meant for older kids, aimed at helping to find the passion within and achieving goals. I think it's safe to say that Shaquille knows this subject well. He has received innumerable awards, seriously, so many, among which are the Princess Diana Award, given to those who go above and beyond to create and sustain positive change in the world. He was named one of 2017's most influential people by President Barack Obama, and he was a 2017 Barron Prize recipient, which honors children who have made a significant positive difference to people and the environment. These are huge accomplishments and awards. I mean, really huge. But wait, that's not all. There's more. On top of all of that, Shaquille is also a motivational speaker and youth ambassador for several other organizations. He strives to get young people involved in their communities on a local and global level. Challenging children to find their passion and use it to make a difference, Shaquille says, and I quote, When I speak to other kids at schools and community centers, I always say, don't wait until you're an adult to be great. You can be great now. And you know what? Jaquiel is great in my book. He really is. This child, he's now a 14-year-old, well-polished young man. He's the very personification of living for a living. He is living and breathing his life's true purpose. And he didn't read Jamal's book to learn how because Jamal's book had not yet been written. So Shaquille just naturally followed his heart. He saw something that needed to be changed. He made a plan, and he did it. It was natural, which is true of all of us if we follow our hearts and go with the guidance that moves us toward our true purpose. And this is exactly what Jamal writes about in his Amazon bestselling book, Living for a Living. So I'd like you to please take a moment to now write down the website. It is jamiljavanji.com, and I am going to spell that out for you. So here we go. J-A-M-A-L-J-V-A-N-J-E-E.com. So please take time after the show to visit uh, Jamal's website because you will be really glad that you did. You will learn a lot, and you'll be able to order the book from the site as well, I am going to guess. And I would be remiss if I did not also extend kudos to Jaquiel's aunt. She brought him along to help her distribute food to the homeless when he was only five. 
you know, we don't know what inspires children, but what we do know is children notice everything. They really do. And his aunt was a catalyst to his inspiration. She could have said no. She could have thought he might slow her down, but she didn't. Instead, I'm going to guess, she unknowingly gave Jaquil an opportunity to grow. And Jaquil, in his infinite wisdom, said, yeah, okay, I'm going to go along with that. And he took it and he ran with it. And he ran with it in a really big way. So kudos to Jaquil's aunt. I hope you realize the positive, life-changing impact your decision has had, and not just on your nephew, but in this world. You know, the ripple effect is enormous. And this is good stuff that Soji focuses on and chooses to share with you. So we will be back to the show. Let's see. Jamal, we're back now. That was my Soji share. Hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I was... uh... I felt like jumping up and down listening to that. What an unbelievable, unbelievable human being. I love that. And uh, he is literally a, the, exactly, as you mentioned, the, the embodiment of the heart of the, of the book, Living for Living. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are so many kids out there that are doing so many wonderful things, and this is one of the segments we've added to the show to make sure that people understand that. You know, you can watch the news on TV and listen to the same seven topics be regurgitated over and over again every night, or – you can choose to focus on the good that's happening because there's way more good happening in this world than there is the negative stuff that we hear. And we know that's true because we hear the same stuff every night. So why bother? You know, I mean, don't even listen to it. It's just, it's not even, it's not worth knowing about. So we are here with Jamal Javanji, author of living for a living. And before I showed you share, we were talking about money and pain and suffering and all that stuff and how when our stories around any of those becomes our focus or our belief that creates our lack. And whether we realize it or not, that's when we're merely existing rather than living. So knowing that, is there anything you, Jamal, can offer to help people starting now to move forward? And I will say the first thing is obviously to read your book. That's key. But in this moment, is there a takeaway you can provide to help people get started on living for a living? Absolutely. Well, first of all, um, I, I, I always tell people this. You, you get what you emphasize, right? So we're, there's a principle here, and I talk about this a lot in my coaching work, where focus goes, energy flows. You know? And it's, that's, so it's literally the, you know, the, the crop, if you want to use farming analogy, the seeds you plant are the crop that's going to grow. And it just, that's the way life works. So the stories we're telling is going to determine our focus. So if we're telling a story about money or energy, that there's not enough, then that's what we're going to get, not enough. Um, but if we, if we change the story um, from not enough to, I, to, a, to a place of volition or choice, that it's, not, it's not not enough, it's I choose this. Whatever it is, I'm cho- if you can just shift the narrative from I have to do this or you know, I'm forced into this. So when you're in poverty, I would say poverty and abundance is first and foremost a internal mindset before it ever can manifest externally. The internal world is what gives birth to the external world. It's this way in everything. Think about everything you do and you have, like if you're married, well, first, there, it, it had to start in your consciousness as a desire. There was an idea. There was a, there was a desire to be married, and therefore it eventually manifested in your physical life. You know, it's the same thing with anything we do. So if we can understand that, so the practical advice I would give to a person is, is specifically pay attention to the, to the language we're using when it comes to our, our job, our work, right? I, and I'll give you an example of this. 
um, I was talking to a man who um, had, I think he'd heard about living for a living, and he, he was in this forum, this online forum, and he said, you know, the idea of the, of the book, Living for a Living, is great. He said, and I would love to be able to live for a living. He said, but the problem is I can't do that. I said, well, why can't you live for a living? And he said, well, because I've got to pay the bills because I have a family that depends on me. And uh, living for a living, that's great. It's a great idea, but it doesn't bring in a paycheck, and I have to bring in a paycheck. And I said, okay. So he said, so I don't have the luxury of living for a living. I said, okay, so what do you, what do, you do? He said, I have to go to work. And he used that language. I have to go to work. I said, you, mm-hmm. you do have to go to work. And he said, I do. And I said, again, tell me why you have to go to work. Why I have to pay the bills? I said, okay, I, I want to challenge you there. I said, I actually don't think you have to go to work. He goes, what do you mean I don't have to go to work? I said, I don't think you have to go to work. Uh, I think you feel – so, again, whenever we, we feel like we have to do something, we don't have a choice. Now, human beings are – I'm convinced that human beings are designed to be free. Freedom is the heart cry of every human being. Every society wants to be free. Nobody has to teach us this. This is the way we're designed. If you have no choice, if you only have one choice or one option, that's not a choice, right? So if you have one option – and then, you, you know, so if we're trading time for money, that's called prison, right? If we're trading time for, uh, for anything, you know, like this is when we get we sentenced to jail. You know, they sentence you to time, five years, 10 years, 20 years, and we don't really have right. a choice about it, right? That's, that's a prison sentence. Well, this is how we're approaching our, our, our work life, right? I don't have a choice. So no wonder people are suffering because people feel like they're in prison. So we need to give people more choices than just one which is I have to do this. So I told this guy, he, I, I said, you have more options. He goes, what options do I have? I said, well, you have two. There's probably more, but let's just, I, I can see two right now. And he said, what is that? I said, you could quit your job or you could choose to go to work. He says, well, I can't quit. I said, sure you can. And, and I said, let's just, so let's play this game for a moment. I said, let's say your boss came to you today and they said, hey, we, we're so sorry. Uh, we're having some economic uh, problems, and we have to we have to make some cutbacks, and um, you know we're going to have you know I'm so sorry, but we're going to have to lay you off. And uh, I said, what would you do if that happened to you? And he said, I don't know, I would do something. I was like, would you would your life would you just evaporate? Would you just fold fold the you know and just be done with life? He said, no. He says, funny you mentioned that because in my company they are downsizing right now, and a lot of people I know have gotten laid off. And so far, so good. I'm okay. But he's, a lot of people have gotten laid off. I, I said, okay, so something that happened to you, what would you do? He goes, well, I'd do something. I said, well, like what? What would you do? He said, well, I'd probably go look for another job. I said, okay. You'd look for another job. He, I, and, and he said, well, and, and until then, I could probably you know, get on some kind of government assistance. Uh, um, and, he, and then he, then he started. But, and I also have, um, you know, I have, I have some, some really generous family members that have, have told me that if I got my pinch, they would help me out. He said, so there are, there are options. I said, oh, okay, okay, so you have options. I said, so, so you can quit because if you quit your job, what would you do? He's like, well, I don't know. I'd have to, I said, you would have to do something, wouldn't you? He said, I would have to do something. I said, so why don't you quit? Why, why live like a prisoner? How precious is life? Just quit your job. He said, well, I don't want to quit. I said, oh, tell me more about that. Why don't you want to quit? He said, well, I, if I'm being honest, I kind of like the paycheck. Pay, it pays decent. I said, oh, okay. So you like the paycheck. He said, that's right. I like the paycheck. I said, okay. Is there anything? And so why, why do you like the paycheck? He said, well, it, you know, it does. I, I love to serve my family. I love that it puts my kids in private school and 
Uh, I love the fact, the fact that, you know, I, I can feed my family. I love that. I said, okay, does that feel good to be able to do that? He said, yeah, it actually does. I said, so you, you enjoy that. He's like, yeah, and I don't want the stress of, like, not like having to get on government assistance or go, you know, go look for help or try to apply for another job. He said, I, I like the certainty of knowing I'm getting a paycheck. I said, okay. So what I'm hearing you say is that you appreciate you appreciate the, the, the payment that's coming to the job. You appreciate what it can afford you to do. I said, is there anything about your job, anything? And I don't, it doesn't have to be big. Is there anything about your job that you do on a daily basis that you enjoy a little bit? I said, tell me one thing that you like about your job. He goes, well, I'm pretty good at, and he kind of listed a few things. I'm pretty good at this. And pretty, I said, oh, great. I said, so not only do you like the paycheck, you're actually good at a few things, and it brings you joy to do them to some degree. He said, yeah, that's right. I said, so here's the thing. If you don't want to quit, choose to go to work today, choose your job, choose, feel gratitude for the paycheck, and feel, feel the excitement and joy that you get because you get to do this aspect in your job every single day. I want you to feel that because that's a very different energy than I have to. If you choose it, you don't have to do it. You chose it. That, that's the beginning of living life on your terms. Now, it's not the end of it. If you start living life on your terms, and you start that's that is living for a living the universe will hear that i'm convinced the way energy works the universe will hear here's somebody that doesn't have to do anything but here's somebody who's free and is choosing let's give them more choices and more choices will open up doors will start to open things that will blow your mind but that is the start that's how we start to shift energy from living for survival to living from an economy of love and service because we're, we're really here we eventually will do things that bring us joy and the things that bring us joy eventually will bring the world joy. And then we end up doing what's needed in the world. Kind of like that man, that little boy that you talked about um, who has, you know, had this incredible vision of serving the homeless and um, has yep. went off to read a, written a couple of books. He's not doing that because he has to. He's doing that because it's what's needed. But when, when you're in survival mindset and we feel like we have to do something, we can't even tap into that that creative energy that will, that will allow us to dream and create and move in that direction. So I always tell people the first place you can start, like if you're just listening to this message and maybe you haven't even read the book, the first thing we all can do is we can begin to choose everything we're doing. And if you can't find one reason to choose it, then don't do it. I would say just quit. If you can't find one reason to do what you're doing, just stop. And you'll feel empowered in that decision. You will, and I think the other thing you said that you touched upon, which is huge with me, is gratitude. You know, the mm-hmm. more grateful you are, the more you're opening yourself up to receive, because as you said, the universe does look at that and says, oh, look, they're grateful for that. Let's send more that way. Gratitude mm-hmm. to me is the secret of life, because it just, it just manifests so many other things when you're grateful. And this gentleman was telling you the things that he enjoyed doing, and it sounded like he was kind of grateful for them. He, they were joyful. And when there's joy, there's gratitude. But you have to express the gratitude. You know, you have to say it and, and allow it to, I don't know, go out there in the ethers, I guess. I remember a couple of years ago, it was pre-COVID, I remember getting the mail and coming in the house, and, and my husband was standing there, and I'm opening the mail. And I said, oh, thank you for the money. And he me, goes, what? And I said, somebody sent us a penny. And he said, it's a penny. And I said, yeah, I know, but it's money, so thank you for the money. Shortly thereafter, I don't know whether it was a week or a month, it wasn't that long after, we got a nickel in the mail. You know, these people that send stuff and, and post nickel on it. 
So I opened it up and I said, thank you for the money. <laughs> he looked at me and he says, wow. it's a nickel. I said, it's five times what it was the last time we got more. So clearly the gratitude's working. <laughs> <laughs> then about another month, another month later, we get another uh, thing in the mail. And this time it was what looked like a quarter. And I said, oh, thank you for the money. And, I, and my husband goes, it's not a quarter. And I said, no, it's an angel quarter. That's better than money. That's better. So thank you for the angel quarter. And I mean, you know, he just rolls his eyes because, you know, I, I should probably be put away. But <laughs> these are the things that actually work. They do. When you give gratitude, you are sending out a message that you're grateful and, and you're so full of joy, you're going to get more because I think the universe wants us to be in joy all the time. And couple that with what you were doing with that gentleman. And you mentioned it. You said, you know, gratitude. And I thought, yay, I'm glad you said gratitude because that to me is key as well. And I know, I know, I know, I know, Jamal, that you agree with that. Oh, absolutely. And gratitude, and, you know, I talk about this in the book as well, you know, what you're grateful for, you will, you will get more of. And yep. what you perceive you lack, you will get more of that as well. <laughs> so, yep. so I would say, you know, it, it just it, it's okay to – have desire. What causes human suffering is not desire. It's the, it's the sense of unfulfilled desire. And this is what's causing our suffering. When we have a desire, we feel like it's inaccessible. And whenever, you know, when we think of inaccessible desires, it's always in the future. So our mind goes to the future, then, you know, we want to, to start to, you know, I, I really want this job, or I really want this relationship, or I really want, you know, whatever it may be. And we start to just imagine that having that and then we feel in the present tense like oh my gosh i can't get there because it's in the future and then we try to get there we're striving to try to get there and the more we strive to get there the more we're sending out a message that says i'm not there and then we're suffering so the, the solution is not to get rid of some people say well we just have to get rid of our desires and not 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 have it no i don't think that's the solution at all because first of all i always like to ask people what why would you want to get rid of your desires and they said because i don't want to suffer he's like well isn't that a desire? It's not wanting to suffer is a desire. It's you cannot get rid of desire. But what we need to do is we need to bring that desire that we've sourced, that we've, we've put in the future in our imagination somewhere, or the, the lack of that desire we've put in, that, in the future. This is why we're feeling anxious about the future because we're perceiving a future in which what we want or need isn't, doesn't exist. So I like to say take the desire of what you want and begin to imagine and, and, and experience that in this moment, which is entirely possible. And exactly what you're doing when the penny comes to the marriage, thank you for the money, right? If you just yeah. focus on uh, the one cent dimension of it, and, and well, there's so much more money than one cent, you know, then of course you're not going to feel gratitude. But if you can, oh, there's money here. Thank you. Oh my gosh, there's mo- in this moment, money was sent to me. Thank you. You start to, start to feel that. You're now in a state of abundance, which then, of course, uh, begins to attract more of that. Um, it's just, a, it's, you know, we've all heard of the law of attraction, but that's how it works because yep. you need to get into a state. Again, this is what you emphasize you will get. Um, this, is, this is true in every aspect of life. And so it's, it's, we, we, there's a lot of things in life we don't control. You know, we don't control who's in office. We don't control the weather. We don't control directly. We don't control these things directly. But one of the things right. we have direct control over is our perception and focus. Where does our focus go? We are the only ones that have control over that. Nobody else does. 
So if we can focus it on what we actually want, the state of being we would want to feel. So for my father, to give you an example, he came from a lot of poverty. I talk about that in the book, and um, he always wanted more money, more money. It's always about more money for him. And I asked him one day, I said, why, why do you want more money? And he, and he, you know, he just said, so we can, so I can feel safe, basically, as well. So we can pay the bills and make sure we're taken care of and we can feel we don't have to worry about where it's going to come from. That's so really what he's saying is I want to feel safe. I want to feel secure. So I asked him, how much money do you need to feel safe? And he came up with a dollar amount at one point. And, you know, I, I know just from his journey, he actually achieved that dollar amount. And I remember going back and thinking, hey, do you feel safe now? Of course, he didn't. He's, no, it's not enough. And, you know, it, as quick as it came, it could go and that kind of thing. But what he really wanted to feel was safe. So can, the question is, can we feel safe in this moment? Can, is it possible to feel safe now? And I would say it's right. only possible to feel safe now. You can't feel right. safe in the future right. because there's no future. It doesn't exist. It's only in, in the imagination. And the, the past is gone. So it doesn't matter what happens in the past. But in this moment, if I look at this moment the way it is, I will see that I am absolutely provided for. There's plenty of air. Um, there's plenty of food. There's there, whatever I need to, to keep me alive in this moment is here in this moment. So there's a sense of abundance and safety right now. So if I can get into that state of being immediately, that's where my focus goes. And then that's what I will receive more of because that's what we, again, what you emphasize is what you get. That's and that's right. a key component here. That is a key component, and that is a great takeaway. You know, this hour always goes by really, really fast. It was, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show, and we're almost out of time, Jamal. But before we go, would you please tell our listeners how they may learn more about you and your work and where they may purchase your book, Living for a Living? Yes, thank you so much. And, and, and as you mentioned, um, you know, I, I do have a personal website, and on my website I have – uh, there's links to my book, which is um, which is available on Amazon per, per, predominantly, um, and then I also have a podcast called the Lovecast with Jamal podcast, and that's that link is there on my on my uh, website, and also my coaching work. I have a workshop that I uh, offer to folks, and that's also all that information here on the website, which is uh, jamaljavanji.com. It's probably the and I'm, I'm active on social media, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, but all of that, all of those links are also on my website. So probably the best thing to do is to just go to the website and people can, can stay, uh, stay current with all that I'm doing there. Great. Thank you so much. Again, it's been a real honor having you on the show. I really appreciate your time, your expertise, all your insights and perspective. It's been great. Thank you so very much. Of course, and thank you again for having me. And thank you for the the energy, and I always say, you know, it, these shows like yours don't just happen. It takes a lot of intention and focus and work, and uh, I, this is the work that I've, I've alluded to in my book. You know, when we are not focused on survival, we will do what's needed in the world, and I can tell you that shows like yours is what we need, and I appreciate you uh, creating this. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay, listeners, we need you to spread the word. We know you enjoy what you hear on From the Heart Radio, so please share it with your friends. We live in a most challenging and constantly changing world, and that's why I have the guests that I do, to keep you apprised so you won't get lost in the dross of life. 
We need to stay aware so we can navigate easily and live the life we're meant to live productively, healthfully, and purposefully. And this is where you find the tools to do just that. So please share the good news by sending the link for this show to everyone you know and let them have the same opportunity that you just had so they may learn and grow and make the world a better place for all. On behalf of everyone here at From the Heart Radio, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. My name is T. Love, and I hope you'll be back next week for another great show here at From the Heart Radio. Mark your calendar now so you'll remember to tune in next week. Please also check out Soji Huggles Children's Foundation, where every dollar of every donation directly supports children in need 100%. You need only give thanks to do so. Take care and stay well.